turn, if you will, to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Titus, chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I just want to say how, how great it is to be back, to see so many familiar faces. It's been a long time since I've been here on a Sunday morning, and it is so great to see every one of you. Titus, chapter 1. And one more comment before we look at this. How grateful are you for Dr. Chuck Quarles? Yeah. I've been watching his sermons online and just so rich, so rich. And the, I know him a little bit outside of the pulpit and the character of the man too. You're just so blessed to have him. Well, let's take a look at Titus chapter one. We'll read there in just a minute. The title of today's message that I want to talk to you about is biblical qualifications for elders. I'm gonna, I may use the word pastor. I may use the word elder. I may use the word overseer. I may use the word shepherd. All of those terms that you find in the New Testament refer to one and the same office. So I probably most often use the word elders, but if I use another word, just don't get confused. I'm not talking about a different office. We're talking about the same office that the Lord has given, the pastor, shepherd, elder, overseer. You'll forgive me for beginning my, my sermon with one of the most obvious observations possible. We have not yet arrived at the new heavens and the new earth, have we? When that day comes, that will mean the restoration of all things. Unending peace and shalom that Jesus Christ will bring to pass. But we're a far cry from that right now in our world. We're told in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 27 that when that day comes, our God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We don't see this shalom, this peace in God's creation right now, not by a long shot. And what is the very opposite of times of peace? It would be times of war, would it not be? It's a sobering truth that every Christian has to come to terms with at some point in their life, and that is this, that you and I, as God's church, we live out our Christian life not in times of complete peace and shalom, but in war times. We are in a very real war. You only are three chapters into your Bible until you're confronted with the reality of that war and our great enemy, our common enemy, He's given many names throughout the Bible, but when we, when we first encounter him in Genesis chapter 3, he comes using the clothing of a serpent. He's called Satan throughout the Bible, which simply means adversary. In other places, he's called the devil, which means slanderer. Slander, of course, is false speech intended to tear down someone's character. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, the Lord Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies. He's called in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, the accuser of the brethren. 
And then finally in Revelation chapter 20, we meet him again as the deceiver of the nations. Our enemy, this common enemy who has many names, he hates God. He hates what God loves. And this means he hates all of humanity as, of course, human beings are made in the very image and likeness of God. But he especially hates the Lord's church because we are people, those of us who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the long-promised Messiah, the Savior, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 who would come into the world one day and crush the head of the serpent, who would come through the tribe of Judah wielding a scepter as a king and would one day destroy his enemies and who would be the suffering servant as Isaiah showed us who would suffer on our behalf taking our transgressions upon himself so that those of us who trusted in him this suffering king Messiah that we could be set free we could be saved and those of us who have placed our faith in Christ We have been delivered out of Satan's kingdom and placed securely in God's. We call this the church. And as the Lord's church, we function in this world in a manner that is in direct opposition to the enemy's plans. How so? Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3.15, by the way, just after in that letter Paul also would go through qualifications of elders in that same letter he writes this in chapter 3 and verse 15 if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God now please listen to how he describes the church which is the church of the living God and here it is a pillar and a support of the truth Don't miss the imagery that the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write there in this letter to Timothy. A pillar, what does it do? It holds up a structure. If that pillar goes, so goes the structure. And the church is to be like that in the world that we're in while we are in these war times that we're in until Jesus Christ comes back God has placed a pillar in this world and that pillar is supposed to hold up truth and that's the church and to the degree that we do that we frustrate we thwart the enemy's plans because again he is the father of lies he's the deceiver of the nations he's a slanderer he does not like the truth But we have this truth revealed to us in the Word of God. And we as the Lord's church have been given this truth and we're to be stewards of it. He's given us instructions also in terms of how we are to organize the church. And we should not be surprised to find some of the enemy's sharpest attacks coming against the church in this specific area that deals with appointing elders, pastors, and then those men carrying out that task in the church. If the enemy can entice the church to compromise in either selecting men who are biblically unqualified to serve as elders, or number two, suppose you have qualified men, but then here comes the enemy. What does he want to do? He wants to tempt 
and to deceive these men, these elders, into compromising how they carry out their task in any number of ways. And if he can do this, he can cause incredible damage to the church. And I don't think it's going to surprise anyone for me to make the statement that the wake of carnage that is often left behind in church after church after church due to poor leadership in the area of pastors, elders, is sadly a massive wake, far too common. Peter writes immediately after he also has given instructions for elders in the church. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he reminded these Christians to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, again, that is the one who stands against God's purposes, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, before we look at the specific qualifications for elders, I'm obviously taking a decent bit of time here to make this point strongly at the outset. And here's the point that I want to make. The task of prayerfully selecting biblically qualified elders and then those men carrying out their stewardship in that role that God has given to them will be fought with intense fury from our enemy and with relentless attempts to deceive and to tempt with the aim of perverting the Lord's church so that the church no longer stands effectively as a pillar and a support of truth in this depraved culture. When you realize this, you realize that no amount of man's resources, no amount of money, no amount of business savvy, no amount of marketing tactics, social prestige are the answer for what we are up against in this present war. They will not do the trick. But thankfully, we're told in God's word in 2 Peter 1.3 that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Again, I mention this war to heighten the seriousness of what we're about to look at together when God, through the inspiration of his spirit, lays out for his people what he intends for us to do in terms of selecting elders to steward his church as overseers. We have to follow very precisely what he tells us with no compromise. And we must rely, and I'll talk about this Probably the bulk of the message, I'm going to talk about this truth right here. Please hear me. We must rely, both elders and congregation, upon God's indwelling spirit to enable us to live out the life we've been called to as Christ's church. With that said, look at Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ... For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Let me just make a mental note here. It's wonderful that he's writing to Titus, who is a Greek, a Gentile. 
and he includes him in that designation of God's elect. That would have been a staggering truth in Old Testament times that Gentiles too would be gathered in to the group that was known always throughout history as God's elect, his chosen, his special possession. The wonderful news is now that invitation has gone out to all peoples. So he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone, or I should say any man, is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound or that is in healthy doctrine, and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate. Now just, again, get a little survey of what this church, these churches were up against here. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound or healthy in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. We're talking about biblical qualifications for elders in the Lord's church. A question is answered right out of the gate as Paul is writing this letter to Titus. And the question is this, why appoint elders? Why did he leave Titus in Crete to appoint elders? And the answer there in verse 5 is very plain. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you may put what remained into order. Or the, the idea is to make straight what's presently crooked, what needs to be straightened out. And 
How are you going to do that, Titus? He tells him, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The Lord wants order in his church. He does not want disordered churches. Now, I'm, I'm aware that people in our culture today often say things like, I'm spiritual, I'm religious, and I just don't like organized religion. Well, the only other kind is disorganized religion. And so that's not what we want in its place. But I get it. I think what some people are after, they, they, they've seen hypocrisy in a, in, a, in a church. They've seen power struggling. They've seen things that, that, that have really turned them off in some cases. And, and, and I think they think perhaps that if maybe this thing weren't so formal and organized, it'd be more authentic. That's the buzzword today, authenticity. And there is an obsession that our culture has with authenticity. And we think that, uh, you know, just being sort of spurt of the moment and disorganized must necessarily mean authentic. But you don't find that idea anywhere in the Bible. The Lord is very clear that he wants his church to be organized. And there is to be a leadership organization in the church. And uh, this is what Paul was asking Titus to go and to do. Well, if there's a need for order, what does that necessarily tell us? There's present disorder. What was the disorder that needed to be made straight? First of all, there obviously was a lack of leadership and oversight. That's why Paul said, Titus, as you're going in Crete, go around to these different areas and appoint elders, overseers, leaders in these positions. The church needs godly leaders. Second, there was false teaching going on that was often going unchecked. And false teaching is to your spirit what unsanitary food would be to your stomach. It makes you sick. It's not good for you. It's unhealthy. So you look down in verse 10. He mentions there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. Verse 11, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. There was false teaching going around. And whose task was it to correct that teaching? It was the task of the elders, the pastors in the church. There was a lack of discipleship and teaching and sound doctrine. No less than five times in this letter do you find the mention of either one of these variations. The word sound shows up five times. It's either sound teaching, sound faith, sound doctrine. The idea is healthy. Do you think the Lord cares about sound doctrine? How in the world could we be a pillar in support of the truth if truth is perverted in our teaching? It's impossible. This is why it is no small thing when false teaching begins to enter the church, however it comes in. And it is the shepherd's elders' task to stay on their guard and to watch for when that happens. And it will happen. As far as I can tell, Satan is not into taking vacations. And he's not laying down his arms anytime soon. So elders have to be on the ready looking for false teaching, and their task is to correct it and to replace bad doctrine with sound doctrine. Now listen, God is not a God of disorder. He is a God of order. We learn in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, that he is not a God of confusion, as Paul puts it, but a God of peace or harmony or order. 
And godly pastors are given to the church to bring order in these specific ways. And whenever a church has a godly pastor or godly elders, it is a real gift to the church. And we thank God for that. I've had men in my life who've served as my pastor. And I think back to some of these, these wonderful examples of guys who were these sorts of men. They taught the truth. They refuted false doctrine. They were men of courage when courage was demanded. I was thinking earlier today, I got a text from uh, a good friend of mine. She was the, um, the, the widow of Bill Booyer, who was pastor of Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. Bill went to be with the Lord some years ago. When we moved to town here, uh, Bill took me under his wing as, and he mentored me. We'd meet once a week up at uh, the, the Village Deli or in his office or some other place, Bill and I and another guy, and he just poured his life into me, invested in me, and he taught me so much. And he showed me a great example of a pastor with unquestionable integrity. If Bill said it, it was as good as gold. You could take it to the bank. Bill was a man of his word, and he was a man who stood unashamedly on the truth of the Bible. He took us on mission trips. He showed us how to share our faith. He was the quintessential pastor elder, and I thank God for his example and for so many others. Another man who took me under his wing, who was not pastoring when I got to town, but he had pastored for 30 years, and many of you will know this name. Anybody familiar with Dr. Bruce Little? One of the um, godliest men I've, I've ever had the privilege of knowing, without a doubt, the most brilliant man that I've ever met. And Dr. Little also took me under his wing when I came to town here and started going to seminary, and he just invested in me. And I've watched carefully over the years, you talk about a well-ordered life, but I've watched over the years how Dr. Little has faithfully lived his life out according to the truth of God's word and how he has unashamedly stood for the truth. And I've always been impressed by his example. If I could be one-tenth of these guys in my own life, I'd be so grateful. I say all this to say, right out of the gate, the Lord's church, we see, is to be ordered, and the way the Lord orders it is by appointing godly elders. Let's now look at the biblical qualifications that we're, that we're given here. Now, disclaimer, I, I'm not going to go through all of these and give each of these qualities equal time. We just don't have time for that. What I will do, I'm going to hone in on a couple of these because I think they're particularly needed given our context and our culture today. So you can read these in your own time and go back. Uh, ones that I won't focus on, some of these are pretty self-explanatory, but I will hunker down on uh, two of these. First of all, uh, it says there in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Let me make a statement that some years ago would be not controversial at all. But for some reason, even in our own convention as I watched this past week, this is a controversial statement. My mind is blown as to why. A biblical elder or pastor is to be a man. Period. Just when our culture can no longer even define what it means to be a man or a woman, I look at churches throughout this country and I see they in many cases cannot 
understand what it means to be a pastor. We had this debate at the convention last year. Joe, you, you recall that. At the convention last year, somebody raised a motion that we needed to set aside a, a task force to go and study what the word pastor means related to this particular issue if just anyone could be a pastor. And I thought the difficulty is not that God has been unclear. God has been so clear. The difficulty is our culture is putting pressure on the church, and in so many cases, we lack courage to stand on what God has said. So clear. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 14. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The principle throughout the New Testament is God has given to man, not because he's essentially worth more. That matter has been settled. The essential worth of man and woman is perfectly equal, as both are made in the image of God. But he has absolutely assigned different roles to us in both the home and in the church. And as it pertains to the church, the role of pastor, elder, of exercising authority and oversight is given to the man. Number two, he's to be above reproach, or your Bible might say blameless. Again, look in verse six, if anyone is above reproach. Now, obviously, this does not mean moral perfection, because how many of us would have to step out of line? Every one of us. What this means is, he lives faithfully, consistently, according to these qualities. Is there any one of us perfect? The only perfect man who's lived this life is the man Jesus Christ. But there is to be a consistency to his living this out. A consistency. And I find it interesting that the first place that he hones in when he's talking about elders serving in the church is where? It's the home life, isn't it? He turns the searchlight upon the home. Somebody said before, the home really is the proving ground for the pastorate or the eldership. Our families, mine are sitting right up there. I can sound holy and upright and spiritual on a Sunday morning like this, and you, I might fool you pretty well. I can't fool them. They live with me every day. They see the real me. My children see the real me, and it's, it's not all great, is it? You can thumbs up. Uh, it's not perfect. But let me say this with all, all humility. I do hope that my family sees a man who loves Jesus Christ and who is unashamed of his word. And, and though I get it wrong and though I stumble, I hope they see a man who wants to live for Jesus Christ as my greatest desire in all of my life. An elder who is fit to serve in that capacity in the Lord's church needs to be a husband of one wife. He needs to be faithful to his wife. My pastor years ago, Adrian Rogers, used to say, men, if you're married, never flirt with another woman. Never cease to flirt with your wife. I saw a great example in his life of a man who faithfully lived this out. And their children are to be believers and well-behaved. If we can't manage our own household, men, uh, we don't need to be seeking the task of elder pastor. It begins in the home. Verse 7, 
this, you might miss this as it's just sort of a side comment as it comes off, but it's very key. Verse 7, for an overseer, what are the next three words? As God's what? Steward. No Bible in here says the word owner. It says the word steward, doesn't it? A steward is distinct and distinguished from an owner. The owner or the master sets the terms. It's his property. He gets to define what is done with it, how it's ordered, what its purpose is, how tasks are to be carried out. And that is, of course, what Jesus Christ gives to his church. The pastor or elders are merely stewards. We don't write the playbook. We simply follow what Christ has revealed to us. And to the degree that we stay faithful to that, we please God in our task. If we start to veer off and we get off, we get outside of the authority that God has given to us. And we start operating like renegades, doing things our master never told us to do, setting agendas, setting purposes that have nothing to do with what Christ would have us to do in this world as his church. We're merely God's stewards. Now, here is where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on this next quality. And he mentions here in verse 7, he must be above reproach and he must not be arrogant. Your version might say self-willed. Perhaps this may be the most serious warning on this list of all the other warnings. This pitfall will inevitably lead to any number of pitfalls. Let me explain. Remember when we find Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he is, knowing full well that he's about to go taste the wrath of God for humanity. He's about to become sin for us, as it were, as the wrath of God would fall on him. I can't even comprehend what struggle that must have been for him in the garden. But notice what he prayed. Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That, by the way, is to be the quintessential attitude of every Christian. That's Christianity summed up in a prayer right there. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. An arrogant or a self-willed man lives his life with the very opposite sentiment. It's as if he goes through life and says, not your will, Lord, but mine be done. And now there is a more subtle way of doing it in the church. We're we're more clever than that. The more subtle way of being arrogant, especially if we're really busy in church life and we need to keep up appearances, is more like this. Not my will, Lord, but yours, but in my strength and with my resources. Not my will, Lord, but yours, but by my strength and with my resources. Either one is arrogance and and self-will. Listen, the glaring truth, when you come to the end of your Old Testament, you finish the story of the Old Testament before you come into Matthew's gospel, you realize that humanity is wicked through and through. Our hearts are corrupt. We don't tend to walk in God's ways. And unless God does something to change our hearts and empower us to walk in his ways, we have no hope. The last book that you come to in our English Bibles is the book Malachi. It finishes out the Old Testament. It ends with a comparison between the arrogant and those who fear God. And Malachi says in chapter 3 and verse 7 
He gives us hope of a future day that God's going to bring to pass. But there's also the condemnation. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. And then he gives the charge, return to me and I will return to you. The word, the Hebrew word is shuv. It's literally repent, come back, return. And then a little later in Malachi, it says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Elijah's been dead for a long time. Is he going to raise up Elijah and send him again? Or you think he means something else? I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn, he will shuv, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. We're told this promise is coming. Moses saw this day coming as well. When you get to the end of Moses' life, they're right there on the edge of the promised land. Moses is not going to get to go in. And he's just given these warnings. He's given the blessings and the cursings to Israel. Blessings if they obey the Sinai covenant, cursings if they disobey it. And he tells them this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. He says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind. Now listen to what Moses says. They're not yet in exile, but this is in Moses. And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will, now pay attention to the language, he will gather you together again. There's this gathering from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Moses is already anticipating and prophesying exile. And then the return. And what will the Lord do? Here it comes in verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that, what will this bring about? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and that you may live. We come to the end of the Old Testament and that day has not come yet. Humanity across the spectrum has been rebelling grievously against God. We're, we're, we're in exile. God's special possession, his own chosen people, have turned away to idols. It looks like God's plan has utterly failed. It's just, it's, it's such a catastrophe when you finish the Old Testament, and yet there's this hope that a gathering, a return could come. But before that happens, God himself has to do something in the human heart. He refers to it in Moses as circumcising the heart. And when he does that, the result will be we would walk in his ways. You get a little further into your Bible, into Ezekiel, and these two things are linked up, and you get more clarity on what he's talking about. Listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you. Ezekiel now talking about the same thing Moses was talking about. Same event. I will gather you from the nations, from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean with water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. Here's God working in the heart of a man again, and look at what he adds to it now. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you, and what will be the result, he continues, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We're talking again about the quality of an elder to not be self-willed, to not be arrogant. Why do I go through all this history? And what is the point of all of this? Here it is. Those who trust in Christ receive the Holy Spirit, the promised one who would do in our hearts what we could not do for ourselves. He would come and indwell us. And, he, and by his indwelling presence and power, he would then enable us from the heart to love our God, to walk in his ways, and to depend upon him to do that through us. May I say that last line again? And to, to depend upon him to do it through us. I'm saying all of this in relation to the charge of the elder not to be arrogant or self-willed. The way that any Christian, now especially an elder, can walk in God's ways is by first trusting in Christ and then, as he lives out his life daily, trusting in the indwelling Holy Spirit to live the life out through us that we cannot live by ourselves. This is the essence of humility, total dependence upon Christ, his sacrifice on the cross to atone for my sins, and the indwelling Spirit of God whom the Father sends in his name to come and to live inside me so that I can now walk in his ways faithfully. You can use the words dependence and humility really interchangeably. Do you know that you could also use the words self-willed and arrogant interchangeably with the word pride? Pride or arrogance or self-will really says to the Lord, I've got this. Dependence or humility says just what Jesus told us in John 15, that apart from him, we can do how much? Nothing. An elder is to be a humbly dependent man on Christ in him. Now, what does this look like? Paul summed it up so well in my favorite verse in all the Bible, Galatians 2.20. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This must be the case in a man who is going to serve as pastor or elder. He must pursue this kind of dependence in his daily walk with Christ. He cannot be a self-willed man. Andrew Murray, in one of my favorite books, it's a classic. It's the book Humility. He wrote this. When I look back on my own religious experience or round upon the church of Christ in the world, I stand amazed at the thought of how little humility is sought as the distinguishing feature of the discipleship of Jesus. In preaching and in living, and in the daily living in the home and in social life, in the more special fellowship with Christians, in the direction and performance of work for Christ. Alas, how much proof there is that humility is not esteemed the cardinal virtue, the only root from which the graces can grow, the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus. Humility, he goes on, the place of entire dependence on God is, from the very nature of things, the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every other virtue. 
And so pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and every evil. I would suggest that the enemy is not threatened by a man who serves as an elder in a church, even though he may be articulate in his speaking, he may be charismatic in his personality, he may be gifted in administration, he may have a successful career, he may work tirelessly in his role as an elder, but the enemy's not threatened by such a man so long as that man does not humbly depend upon Christ as Paul did. And that really is to be, I think, the root virtue in the heart of every elder. In 1 Peter chapter 5, I think in the email that went out, the, a link was put there to Pastor David Hogg's sermon that he gave on this text, which was excellent. And uh, Peter writes of humility in the same context as he's exhorting elders. Let me read for you 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow, fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then listen to what he says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The temptation to seek a pastorate for some men so they can have the position, the prestige, the perceived power can be a great temptation. I think Francis Schaeffer has a good word for us as, as any might consider to aspire to that role. He's got a great word in a book he wrote called No Little People. I would encourage everyone to read this. I personally believe every seminary student coming through our seminaries should be made to read this book. It would correct so much nonsense. He says, quietness and peace before God are more important than any influence a position may seem to give. For we must stay in step with God to have the power of the Holy Spirit. If by taking a bigger place our quietness with God is lost, then to that extent our fellowship with Him is broken and we are living in the flesh. And the final result will not be as great, no matter how important the larger place may look in the eyes of other men or in our own eyes. We see this happen over and over again, he writes, and perhaps it has happened at some time to us. Someone whom God has been using marvelously in a certain place takes it upon himself to move into a larger place and loses his quietness with God. Ten years later, he may have a huge organization, but the power has gone, and he is no longer a real part of the battle in his generation. The final result of not being quiet before God is that less will be done, not more. That's Schaefer. And I repeat again, as Jesus reminded us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not self-willed, not arrogant, but rather humbly dependent upon God. I'll close quickly with this as we're out of time. 
He also stands well informed and unashamed of the Word of God. Well informed and unashamed of the Word of God. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Listen, I know I speak an awful lot about the. If you've heard me preach or teach before, you've heard me mention Adrian Rogers. The reason I do is because he was my pastor. I came to Christ under his preaching at the age of 20. And I also miss him very deeply. The world suffered a great loss when Adrian Rogers went to be with the Lord. And he taught me two things above everything else in his ministry that I will never forget. Number one, he taught me and he taught the whole church to love the Lord Jesus Christ above everything else. It wasn't enough to just have good doctrine. It wasn't enough to work hard. At the end of the day, what it's really all about is knowing Jesus Christ and loving him. Personal intimacy with Jesus Christ. That stood at the very center of his life and ministry. And the next thing I saw from him, both in his teaching and in his example, is he taught us to honor and to submit to God's word no matter the cost and without being ashamed. Some of you in this room will remember in the 70s, coming into the late 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention had taken a progressive turn. History seems to want to try to repeat itself in our day. If you're not aware, just do a little research. You'll see that we're, we're up against much, much the same, a little different, but, but, but much the same today in our convention. But in the late 70s, it was headed in a really bad direction. The progressives wanted to question things in the Bible and really throw out God's clear teaching. I'll never forget a message that Dr. Rogers gave at the convention. You can pull up the video to it, and I will quote him here. Here's what he said. He recalled being in a meeting with a man on a committee who wanted to get him to compromise. And he really just wanted Adrian Rogers to meet him in the middle. Can we just kind of, you come a little this way, I'll come a little this way on some of these ideas. Adrian Rogers said this to that crowd at the convention. He said, one man said to me in that peace committee, he said, Adrian, if you don't compromise, we'll never get together. And I said to that dear friend, we don't have to get together. The Southern Baptist Convention doesn't have to survive. I don't have to be the pastor of Bellevue. I don't have to live, but I'm not going to compromise the Word of God. That has stuck with me, and it's as if it's in my DNA now. And I pray for Christ Baptist Church that as you move forward in this rebuilding phase, that God would help you to select men with that kind of conviction, even at great cost to themselves. He must stand informed and unashamed of the Word of God. He's to instruct in sound doctrine, that's to train the people up, and he's also told to rebuke those who contradict it. And I close with this. He cannot shy away from addressing the issues that are pressing in from the culture out there. I, I get it. 
to speak on some of these things, you, you catch a lot of flack. And those who've spoken openly on any number of issues, whether it be gender confusion, the same-sex attracted Christianity that's making headways into our Southern Baptist Convention, write a note on that. That's the latest thing that's at our doorstep, same-sex attracted Christianity. The woke movement and any number of things, any of us who've spoken on these things, you're going to catch flack. But that's unavoidable. What's far more important is the fact that our God has told us as his church, we are to be a pillar and a support of the what again? Of the truth. We must speak on these issues as they confront us and threaten to deceive people. I want to read you from the foundational documents of this church, Christ Baptist Church. I can't say this any better, and I'm so grateful when I read this. This, they got it right. This church just nails it bullseye. Listen to this. This is from the, the foundation of Christ Baptist Church. Christ Baptist Church will be engaged with prevailing cultural issues, confronting the culture with Christian alternatives to social evils, thus becoming salt and light to the culture. All will be invited to consider and embrace biblical principles. This ministry will be two-pronged. It will be aggressively proactive in confrontation, but lovingly redemptive in promoting the biblical remedy. The mission of Christ Baptist Church is to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, equip the saints for ministry, present Christ to all peoples and all generations, and confront the culture with the truth of the Holy Scriptures, lovingly offering biblical alternatives. Amen. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of truth of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And I just end with this. I pray that God would provide Christ Baptist Church as you move forward with a pastor and pastor elders who are not arrogant, not self-willed, but are humbly dependent upon the spirit of Christ in them to give them the presence and the power to do what they cannot do in their own strength. And I pray also they will be men who are informed and unashamed of the word of God. Now listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you've heard what we've talked about. You know, when I think back into the history of, of uh, the Bible as human history has unfolded, there was a time, if we'd go back to the Old Testament, where Israel was God's special possession, his chosen people. And they rejected him and went off and, and abandoned him for other gods. And there's a promise that's given in Isaiah chapter 49, and I'll paraphrase it, and it's hope for all of us. Most of us in this room, probably not Jewish, probably most of us Gentiles. But the promise through the prophet Isaiah was that the Messiah was going to come and it would be too small a thing for him to simply gather in Jacob or Israel, but that he would be a light for the nations. Jesus Christ has died for every person in every nation for all time, and he has desired for all time to save every person who has ever lived. That includes every person in here today if you're not a Christian. The reality of the matter is that the Bible teaches so clearly that all of us 
have sinned. We've broken God's laws. We've gone astray. And the Lord in his mercy and grace has taken our own shortcomings, our own sin, debt, and placed it on his son Christ, who came into the world and lived the perfect life as a real man that no one has ever lived. So when he made that sacrifice on the cross, he didn't need to make it for himself. There was no need for death in him. He, he didn't do anything to deserve it. So his death could count in place of others. His perfect righteousness could be credited into the accounts of others. That's the great news of the gospel is that that's the offer that Jesus makes to every person. If you have not trusted him as your Lord and Savior, I would plead with you today. Christ died for you. He paid everything that needed to be paid to take your sin debt away and to give you everlasting life. And if you will turn from your sins and humbly admit what God has already said is true of you, that you cannot attain salvation by your own good works, but only Christ can do that for you. If you would humbly admit that, repent of your sins, and place your faith in Jesus Christ, I can tell you, not on Brian's opinion, but on the authority of the unchanging Word of God, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus Christ will save you today if you will repent and call on him as Lord and Savior. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We are not ashamed of it. It is all true from cover to cover. There's no book like it. We thank you that you've revealed what is true about us, what is true of your church, what's to be the purpose of your church, and what's to be the purpose and the qualifications of men who are called to step into the office of elder. Please, Lord, hear our prayer today and bless Christ Baptist Church with a pastor who meets these qualities, with elders who meet these qualities. I pray there would be not even the slightest hint of compromise as this church carries out this search for such men. And we know, Lord, that you are the one who is the giver of all good things. So as you give this good gift to your church, Lord, we will remember to thank you for it. If there's anyone here today, Lord, visiting who does not know Christ, I pray today would be the day that they would come to know him as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.